Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hello, welcome to day six of Arnhem We Have Ways. Uh, James Holland and I, Al Murray, um, basking in glorious Dutch sunshine. Yeah, we are. By the river at Arnhem, but... We've done a lot of market, haven't we? We've done all the market, but we've done that little to no, no, no garden. No garden. No garden. Because <laughs> after all, that's what the code name means. The market's the airborne component. Garden is Second Army or 30 Corps thrusting yes. dynamically up north. Yes. And, and 30 Corps has had some criticism, it's fair to say, for, for, not, <laughs> for not, not being fast enough and being a bit stodgy and all the rest of it. Yep. There is this kind of thing, you know, why did why did Horrocks not order them off until, you know, after lunch on, yes, that's on the really, day one? Yes, really, really weird. And also, they've held that side of the Son Canal for at least 10 days and done and, and not done anything with it. So there is a sense of sort of that there's a bit of a lack of urgency. And it's interesting with Horrocks because... There's another time in the war where he's also missed a golden opportunity by not getting off his ass quick enough, and that mm-hmm. is at the Battle of the Wadi Akarat. Right. Beginning of April, 1943. Yeah. And the 4th Indian Division outflank the whole line, yep. um, blow a massive hole in the Italian line, uh, and when that happens, 10 Corps, of which he was commander back in those days, uh, was supposed to kind of burst through and envelop the rest of them. Yep. And he just doesn't. And by the time they actually get their act together... It's too late and the Italians have pulled back. Why not? Do we know why not? No, it's never been satisfactorily answered. Uh, and so there is there is a bit of form going into that. Generally speaking, though, I mean, I think Horrocks does a injured, good job. Was it, right, I think he's injured in, in North Africa or in Italy. Uh, so Italy was, afterwards, yeah. Yeah, so... So, so, so re- this is, this is before he's injured, he's, he's you know, been... When, when does he take over? He takes over before Alamein, doesn't he? So it's, yeah. um, you know, he's been in the job quite a while. And he's a Monty guy. He's a Monty guy. Um, he's generally considered to be a bit of a good egg, I think. And he's brought into 30 Corps, isn't he? Because mm. uh, the, the guy... Because Crocker's been kicked yeah, out. Yeah, he's been sacked. Yeah. He's one of the sackings in Normandy. Yes. And and quite clearly, Monty's thinking, I need one of my reliable chaps. He's just going to do what he's I tell him to do. do what I tell him to do. I'll do what Dempsey tells him to do, for that matter. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah exactly. And um, I don't know, have you seen the thing from the 50s, where he, the TV yes, address, where he talks about this? Absolutely incredible. Because yeah. he is a he is a huge character, and... and, and Edward Fox in A Bridge Too Far, we've got to talk about the film. Um, that, apparently, that's pretty much... How he was. That's how he was. And he also looks... Edward Fox does look a bit like... Looks a bit like him, and he's got that sort of jolly chap thing going on. He was on. Also known as Jorix, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, Jorix, that's right. You know, yeah. Chaps. It's all, you, you think it's all that sort of chaps stuff that... We're going to have a good party. Yeah, exactly. We're going to put on a bloody good show and all that, give yeah, the Germans hit, a... Hit great, for six. Yeah, all that, yeah. All that kind of stuff. And, and also, there's this kind of sort of new kind of insouciance which has sort of yeah. swept into... British Second Army, particularly the Guards, Armour Brigade, but uh, Division rather, uh, and, and 30 Corps, where it's sort of a bit in for a dig to look too spick and span. So yep. Horrocks is a great one for wearing polar necks and yep. kind of corduroys and, yep. and, and this sort yep. of stuff and battle dress and yep. looking quite cash. Yeah. Um, you know, it's obviously inherited, but sort of come down the, Monty, the line Monty from style, Monty. Yeah. yeah. Um, but actually thereafter, I mean, John Buckley, you know, my old chum John Buckley, he's written that brilliant book, Monty's Men, and it's yeah. such a good yeah. account of the Amazing. British Army yeah. in, in Northwest Europe. You know, he, he argues and argues very convincingly that actually 30 Corps really do get on with it. And actually, apart from that kind of slight late start, actually, you can't really fault them in their kind of... Yeah, given know, what they're having to do. No, and actually, once they get past the kind of 101st area and they get across the... Uh, I mean, the, the, the Bailey Bridge, the, the, the Class yeah. 40 Bailey Bridge, which they put across the, the Zon, um, uh, at Zon, that's, that's, um, that's done pretty quickly. It's done yeah. overnight. Yeah. Uh, and they're all off. I mean, you're talking about sort of... 20,000 vehicles in 30 Corps. You're talking about 2,200 and something just to service them. Yeah. You know, so it's a hell of a thing. Yeah. It's not, you know, and the the problem is, is more vehicles means less speed. And so you're hurtling forward, of course, with your guards, armoured division, um, and and then brigades. Up the one road. You're not getting an awful lot of support from your your divisions on the, uh, a corps on the either side. No. Um, you've got a heck of a lot of bridges to get across. So the fact that actually, you know, by the afternoon of the 20th of September, they're at Nijmegen and only, you know, what, 10, 12 miles away from here, it's is actually, astonishing, yeah. it's pretty, it's going some. Yeah. Um, and anyway, I'm going to get a little bit of a feeling for this because Good. 
because there's a reenactment of, of, of 30 core going on. And it's not quite 20,000 vehicles, but it's certainly about 500. Really? Yeah. And, and I've got a trip in a Sherman tank, my good oh. friend Jim Clark and Jamie Meachin. Uh, and they're going to be heading up, doing the last bit to the Grosbeck Heights. Brilliant. Which is where they're going to be camping tonight. And so uh, that's going to be taking a ride with them. Now. Yeah. I look forward to and doing And hopefully that. stopping for lots of cups of tea and being really <laughs> slow. <laughs> Or will we uh, will actually we not be brewing up and will we actually be hurtling across? But actually, Jim did send me a photograph going, just stopping for a cup of tea. And there they all are, <laughs> all parked up, all got their enamel mugs of tea, going absolutely nowhere. <laughs> well, I look forward to hearing it. So I'm now down in Zealand. I've left Arnhem, left Al, and um, I've caught up with my good buddies um, Jim and Jamie and their wonderful tank, which is done up in the colours of the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry, who were part of 30 Corps because they were 8th Independent Armour Brigade. And um, amazingly, we're being accosted by lots of locals, just as they would have been in 1944. The gag here is, to, is, is for the kids to come up and scream uh, and whack me on the arse. Um, it's, a hilarious, it's a hilarious game. Um, but Jim, um, Jim and Jamie, I mean, how's it been going? I mean, you've been out here for a couple of days. Very good. The tanks are uh, going very well, and yeah. it's uh, nice and sunny, and the, all the people are friendly. It's it's a good time. So it's a bit of a party, really, isn't it? I mean, isn't that the kind of whole point? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 nice to get all the locals involved. Is you know, I mean, most of the events we do, we park up in the field, and that's it, sort of thing. As this is quite nice because it gets all the locals involved, and it's it's a part of living history, really. Now, one of the uh, criticisms of Thirty Core, of course, is that they were a little bit slow and they didn't get a, a shift on. And um, you know, I would argue quite to the contrary, but. But you sent me a photo earlier on, Jim, of um, everyone parked up, having a cup of tea. You've been here for an hour or two. Everyone conveniently placed next to a bar with everyone having a few beers. Um, you know, shouldn't you be stepping on it a little bit? Um, I think it's um, sort of waiting for uh, the people at the top to, uh, give, us the, to give us the orders to, <laughs> to, to move forward. So we've got to wait. And, it's, you know... It, um, so hurry up and wait is the old saying. <laughs> it's just like General Adair and General Horrocks, isn't it? But if we uh, if we wander along here, so we've got we've got Jim Sherman here. We've got a half track leading the way. We've got another Sherman. We've got a priest, um, which is a uh, a Sherman chassis with a uh, with a gun in it, a twenty five pounder in it, um, something a bit bigger than a twenty five pounder, maybe. A 105, yeah, a 105. Also, what's interesting about seeing these vehicles on the move like this, you can see all the extra clobber that's put on, whether it be uh, backpacks, um, bivouacs, um, all sorts of stuff, and tents and sticks and ladders and all sorts of stuff. And this is exactly how it would have been. You can see this priest is carrying a sort of ammunition cart as well, uh, already stacked up. You can see this, look, lots of ammunition in the back here. Uh, and here we've got a, an armoured car, plenty of those, of course. Here we've got the carrier, the universal carrier, also known as a Bren carrier. And again, look at all the fantastic clobber in it. There's a Bren gun there, all sorts of bits and pieces, a Thompson gun, um, camping equipment. And here we have a, a half-track. And this is exactly what a column would look like. You know, it's really, uh, it really does give you a taste of it. I mean, you know, there aren't 20,000 vehicles here, but, but there is a heck of a lot of motorbikes, half tracks, lorries. It's just incredible. And we've got a really old lorry coming along now. Goodness me, this is a tank recovery vehicle. It's absolutely huge. The Remy, and you've got um, what looks like a Stuart Light tank. Plenty of those still, American built. Uh, still plenty of those in 30 core at the time and used by the Americans as well. It's a hell of a thing and it makes you realise just how big some of these vehicles were. Lots of Jeeps are. The Airborne are here. So that's good in their pink berets and their Denison smocks. Um, it really is an amazing picture. I'm hoping I can see um, uh, talk to some more people. Excuse me, do you mind if I get, have a quick chat with you? Yeah, sure. Uh, um, so you've got your half track here and um, you, what unit are you attached to? We're with the, uh, the 11th uh, uh, British Armour Division, yeah. Very good. And where do you come from originally? Uh, from the north of Holland. Excellent. So you're Dutch. And what makes you want to um, take part in this British 30 Corps reenactment 75 years on? It's part of the history. And we try to keep the history alive. So 
That's why I'm here. But having some fun as well. Having a lot of fun. <laughs> and are you stopping as much as Verticore did, do you think? We have to wait a lot, so we probably do. <laughs> but tell me, this, this vehicle, I mean, how, how easy is it to drive and maintain? Is there a lot of maintenance that you've got to do on the way on a, on a trip like this? No, no. It starts every morning, it goes every morning. It's not a problem. So this is superb, fantastic American engineering, mass production vehicle. I think it is, yes. Well, and is it quite easy to drive? I mean, one of the things that surprises me is actually just how modern a lot of these vehicles feel for the mid-1940s. It's, yeah, it's quite easy because uh, I grew up on a farm, so I'm used to driving old tractors, so for me it's quite easy. But I think for a lot of people it's, it's hard work. Uh, yeah, when, when you're making a turn, you're to hit the accelerator, it helps to kick around the wheels a bit and goes around the corner. But nonetheless, an impressive piece of machinery. It's amazing to see this column, isn't it, in it's, action like this? It's amazing a lot of vehicles over here. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. All right, see you later. See you later. So w tell me about your vehicle here. It's a 1942 uh, Canadian military pattern, uh, Chevrolet, made, made in Canada uh, for the British Army, uh, and it's right-hand drive. Uh, powered by a straight six. Ford also made them under the same uh, contracts. Because uh, it looks it looks sort of British, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. It, it doesn't really look American. It, it look, looks. Well, there's no bonnet on it. No. Uh, and that was so they could get more on the ship ah. for shipping. Because uh, for about you know for every eight of these they would get an extra truck yes so real pragmatism at the heart of the yes. design of yes. it so you and can get it across the atlantic in many numbers. numbers they didn't come with the back on generally no uh, and they would stack them because we have we've dive wrecks where these so it has a chassis that runs underneath you put this the back on separately yeah and you can plunk another one on top of it because we've dive wrecks with these on and tell me how easy is it to drive is it fairly uh, straightforward it's reasonably straightforward the pedals are not in the right position the throttle's in the middle right Synchromesh? What's one of those? What's that? <laughs> Power steering? No. Yeah, no. The so lots of no. double declutching. <laughs> yes. The answer is no, we don't have it. Okay. <laughs> but you've been having a good time doing yes. this, have you? Yes. Uh, and what does it mean to you to kind of sort of be part of something that's 75 years on? I mean, it's, it's yeah. incredible to be part of this, isn't it? And to see this incredible... It is. It is. Massive you get a massive welcome in Holland. Do uh, you? Yes. Shad with flowers. I see yeah. flowers all over yes. the place here. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> The kids are great, uh, and people are knowledgeable about it. Uh, yes, yeah. uh, they seem very proud of it in Holland, don't they? Yes, yes. The, the, yeah. their part they play in the war, yeah. and, and they, don't. they seem keen to educate the children that they know of it as well. Yes. I think that's really good because then, if if they know and remember it, it doesn't get forgotten. If it doesn't get forgotten, it never happens again. Yeah. Education is everything. Yeah. Absolutely. And they Absolutely. don't mind when we cause disasters like this. They just <laughs> smile. <laughs> <and> like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you can see why a, a column like this on a single road takes a little bit of time. time yeah. That maybe maybe doing it in kind of 48 hours is a little bit optimistic. Yeah, yeah. the street furniture wouldn't have been a problem then. You just go for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is true. Anyway, nice to talk to you. Right. Enjoy the rest of it. Okay, thank, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. So one of the one of the deals is that uh, to travel in 30 cores reenactment for the 75th anniversary, you have to wear the right kit. And actually, we've just been slightly kind of pulled over the over the coals about not having the right wristband and all that sort of stuff. But Jim, you're you're wearing your um, denim battle dress here, yeah. not rather than the the coveralls. Um, they're pretty comfortable, aren't they? I've got I've got the I've got my I've got my denim battle dress top on. I'm not that chuffed about having to wear serge trousers, I've got to say. Bit too warm in this weather. Bit too warm bit too warm in this weather, yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, and John you've got um, you've got you've got the whole overalls on. How, how are you finding them? You weren't expecting to have to do this. I wasn't you? expecting to have to do this, that's true. They're incredibly comfortable. My blue Adidas trainers are not quite completing the look I have to say. I think I'll have to stay inside the tank. Yeah we're exactly we're gonna stick you in the turret and you can't you can put your head out but you can't do anything else. because um, the the headphones sort of I know they're not kind of period but they kind of look about right. Um, but Jim, I mean, your Sherman tank, I absolutely love this tank. And um, I've had the honour and privilege of having a little go in it a few times. But how long have you had it then? I bought it in uh, November 99. And, and I seem to remember you saying that when, when you bought it, it wasn't in perhaps the best state. No, it was um, an X-range target. It came off a soldier plane. So it, it had been shot at for about 20 years. Fortunately, it, it, it had been on a mortar range. So it hadn't, hadn't had... Um, 
sort of direct fire at it. Right, so most of the chassis was sort of okay, pretty yeah, much. Just, just uh, a lot of the uh, side armour and top armour was uh, badly damaged. And, and I know it's a bit vulgar talking about money, but how much did it cost you back in 1999? I paid 4000 for it. But <laughs> at that time, an, um, a good Sherman was about £30,000. Okay, so then you then did it up yourself. How long did the, the restoration process take? Um, because I was short of money, <laughs> um, it took me about three and a half years to collect the parts. Yeah. And then we restored it from the uh, February 2004 until the June. But we actually rebuilt it in 17 days as a, as a bet from a bear hole. <laughs> That's just absolutely amazing. So, how how much do you think you had to spend on it to get it up and up and running again, and working order, and looking as good as it does now? At that time, yeah, probably owed me when I had it run in two thousand four, uh, including buying it, probably about fifteen thousand. Okay, so so a, a working Sherman tank for less than twenty grand. Yeah, not in pristine condition inside. It wasn't. It, it's not been restored inside. It's. Uh, it's just the outside that looks really good. Well, it um, does look absolutely amazing. But what's it worth now, would you say? <laughs> You're a very rich man, aren't you? Uh, the tax man's listening. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you don't have to say um, that. Well, let's not, just say it's considerably more than it, than yeah, it was. Not, not mine, because mine isn't in perfect condition. But uh, um, a real nice restored Sherman. Like that one there? Like that one there. Probably 400, 400 to 500,000. Wow. So it's a, it's a good investment for, for four grand. Yeah, very, very good investment. Wow, God, that's amazing, isn't it? And, and really, I mean, if, you, if, you, if one wants to, um, you know, I'm not looking at myself here, obviously, but, you know, if, if should someone want to buy a military vehicle of this, this period, I mean, you know, what, what's, your be, what's your best starter, do you think? I mean, how much are Jeeps these days? Uh, Jeeps are expensive. Are they? They're uh, 25000 30000 pounds. Oh, that's, 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 that's a lot of money. That's restored, rather. What about um, a truck? Trucks, they're cheaper because they're harder to keep. In, uh, you, know, you, you need um, somebody to keep them. Um, Jeeps, you can keep in your own sort of uh, little garage. Yeah. But it, when you get into trucks, you need bigger tools and somewhere to store it, um, you know, heavier lifting gear. So it's... So it's not for the faint-hearted, is it, being no, part of the no, no. military vehicle trust? No. or No. And if, if you've got to start paying people to restore your vehicle for you or do the work on it, that's when it That's when it, that's when it gets really expensive. Yeah. So the key is know how to be an engineer. Yeah. Right, it's time to start up, isn't it? Uh, well, that column's going. I don't, I'm probably, probably have to follow on behind them. Yeah, OK, well, let's, let's get going. Uh, well, things are starting up. Our tank is starting up in a, in a burst of of exhaust fumes. This is not good for the world's carbon footprint, it has to be said. Trucks are beside us. <laughs> it looks like the town's on fire, the amount of smoke that's coming out of these various exhausts. So I think we're primed for action. Um, a bit like 30 Core, we're a little bit late, but um, let's not worry about that too much. The sun is still shining. It's a beautiful afternoon, and I've got to say, it really is absolutely amazing to be a part of this and to see this column in action because you kind of half close your eyes and you really can imagine this scene back in 1944 you know a dutch town the same brick buildings the same church as a backdrop the dutch flag now out fluttering from the bar people are standing around watching it go through a motorcycle outrider weaves its way through trying to get through to lead us off Two more motorcycles to one side. The riders in their Denison smocks. It's really, uh, you get a terrific sense of, of, of power, actually. The sense of scale and force of it all. I mean, it's, um, this is quite a thing. So we've got two Matadors coming up alongside us with uh, British Second Army logo on the right-hand side and their unit numbers on the left-hand side. Matadors, really big heavy, chunky trucks, very sort of blunt-nosed, but real workhorses. They just don't look quite as sort of modern as the American equivalents, but they were good trucks. You know, they, they had, had great torque uh, and um, great carrying capacity. Behind us, we've got another Sherman tank, also done up in the colors of the 8th Independent Armor Brigade. People in the turrets, I mean, it, I'm gonna take a photo actually, because it really is an incredible scene. 
And we're off, rumbling forward through Zealand town to south of Nijmegen. Lots of people standing around watching us, seeing the column take off and the lead vehicle, a half track, is in the colours of the Guards Armoured Division, which is appropriate off. And now we're off, we're sort of rumbling forward. Sort of great surge of power, the grinding of the gears, and a sort of a ticking kind of sort of rattle as of the rubber tracks on this cobbled street here in Holland, people waving. It really is a hell of a scene, I've got to say. So I'm sitting up in the turret with John here. John who works with Goalhanger Films. Just a week or so ago was in, uh, where were you? Equatorial Guinea in, in West Africa, covering a, a FIFA World Cup qualifying match. So it's kind of at the extremes of your job, John. It's certainly quite different, that is for sure, yeah. Um, it's unbelievable. I honestly, I can't quite get my head around it. The, the, the sights, the smells, it's, it's, a, it's a whole sensory overload, to be honest. It's, it really is, isn't it? You get that sort of the smell of the burning fuel, of rubber, of oil. Everyone's, everyone's really grubby, aren't they? Yeah. You really know, so it's sort of day on the road. And I've got the microphone right by yeah. me, but I'm already <laughs> having to lift up my voice. I mean, it is seriously noisy here. It's incredibly noisy. It feels incredibly authentic. I know that sounds, sounds quite bizarre, but you, you, you're all automatically transporting back to how you can imagine it must have been. Yeah, you really do get a sense of it, don't you? And just imagine if you're on the victory roll, you're kind of moving up through Normandy, across the Somme, across the River Seine, you know, up into Belgium and then on into Holland, and you're going through these towns, which all look incredibly like this. Everyone's throwing flowers at you, giving you wine, cheering you on your way. You're going to feel pretty good about yourself. We're just going past a Dutch windmill. Absolutely kind of true to the cliche. It's perfect, isn't it? We've got an outrider coming up alongside us now hurtling past in his, his leather jerkin. I've got to say, now I'm up in the turret, I'm quite grateful for my surge battle dress trousers. And actually, I suppose, what are we doing here? About sort of 15, 20 miles an hour, something like that? I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's not actually that slow, is it, really? No, not at all. I mean, you can see how, when they get on a roll, if the enemy isn't in the way and there's not too many mines to, to deal with, actually, as an armoured column, you really could make some progress. Yeah. Now in a Sherman Tango, there's a different way of going over a roundabout, and that's basically just to sort of go straight over it, <laughs> literally. So, so we're obviously having an awful lot of fun doing this at the moment, and it's, it's thoroughly enjoyable. 75 years ago, what would it have been like when they left here heading for Nijmegen? Well, heading for Nijmegen, they just wouldn't have known what to expect. We don't know how far the enemy have reached. We don't know whether the Germans are in the area. They have had trouble all the way along. I mean. Actually, the, the run-up from Son up to Nijmegen is the best day they have, where they make the most progress. They do get to sort of the edges of Nijmegen in one day. You know, that's pretty good going. A bit like this column today that we're in now. I mean, that's where they've come from this morning. But yeah, you'd be feeling, I don't know, I suppose, when you're surrounded by danger, when you've witnessed so much danger, the quiet moments, the temptation to get a little bit blasé and to think you're okay, I would have thought must be absolutely huge. And you just sort of, I can see that the temptation to sort of let your guard down a little bit. There's also that feeling of sort of safety in numbers, isn't there? When you're in a big log column, you feel a bit more protected, a bit more invincible. Also, there's the uh, second tactical air force overhead who are kind of flying sorties absolutely tirelessly to support you and so that's try going on that's going ahead yeah there's a whole there's a whole wing of rocket firing typhoons supporting this operation but they can't be over all the time because they're at the outer reaches of their uh, of their range really and as as they leave zealand like we just have now were 34 under, under constant attack at this stage or, or was it no so they, they they have a very good run along this day where on the 20th of September, where they don't come up against a huge amount of opposition. Right. So this is quite a, a, a comparatively easy day for them. But I just, you know, I've not been there, obviously. I've never experienced it. So I don't know how, how on edge you are all the time. Or, or this is the point I was trying to make, you know, because you face so much danger, 
when you get a nice clear run like this, do you do you just sort of relax a little bit? You know, if you're first in action, if you're if you're first joining the front line, you must just feel terrified the whole time. But there must be a process where you you do start to get used to it. So we just passed through Grave, and that's been quite interesting because this was the first bridge that the 82nd Airborne had to capture. And they had two drops. They had one on the kind of sort of north eastern side of the bridge, and they had a little one, just a small little drop, so that they did understand the concept of capturing a bridge by dropping men at both ends. It wasn't as though they'd never thought of it. So we just passed a German bunker. And this is the main Graf Bridge that 82nd Airborne had to capture. So where we are now, I'm just looking back, just in these sort of fields around us, that was where they did their first little drop. And actually they, they understood the concept of trying to, the best way to capture a bridge is by dropping men at both ends. It's seriously noisy crossing this bridge, I don't mind telling you. This is another wrought iron bridge crossing the River Mars, which obviously flows into the River Meuse. And it was across the Meuse that the Germans broke through in France back in May 1940. So there is a sort of synergy about the Allies crossing back across the River Mars later on in the war in 1944. Phew, well, we're off the bridge. I can actually slightly hear myself think now. So we're now on the northern side of the River Mars and the Grand Bridge. This is where the main, one of the main drop zones was. So Nijmegen is not very far away at all. You know, this whole area was, the 82nd Airborne under um, General Jim Gavin were given the Nijmegen area to capture. And obviously the, the the diff three different parachute infantry regiments, the equivalent of a British brigade of three battalions each, were each given different areas to capture. But, uh, you know, so it's making you realize that it is quite a big old area that they're covering. So right now we're going past one of the drop zones and landing zones. There wasn't just um, airborne troops that were dropping here. Gliders also came in. They're Waco gliders. And looking at these fields, you can see why they would land here. I mean, they're just big, wide, flat, open area. The perfect place in which to attack the bridge over the River Grave, but also to move up to Nijmegen, which is just away to our, no uh, to our left, kind of to the north a little bit. We're now sort of ro heading roughly kind of east-northeast, I suppose. Well, we're nearly there, actually. We're climbing up to the Grosbeek Heights at the moment. And what's this? What's surprising me is just how steep it is. It really is a, a, a substantial climb. And you can see why in this otherwise largely flat landscape, why these would be called the Grosbeek Heights. And of course, it is these heights that General Gavin, apparently with General Browning's approval, put the majority of his troops towards clearing before going all out for Nijmegen Bridge. A really controversial decision because when 30 Corps arrived up in Nijmegen on the evening of the 20th of September, they still hadn't, or the 19th rather, they still hadn't captured, they still hadn't captured the Nijmegen Bridge. It wasn't until the following afternoon that they made their effort to go for the all out attempt to capture it and the famous Vaal crossing. And we need to have a little pause, I think, to let the engine cool down. Well, we pulled over for a little bit. The, uh, the Sherman's just got a little bit hot and just needs to cool down for a bit and then it'll be absolutely fine. I've got to say, it's a heck of a climb up here. You know, we're following up the road up to the Grosbeek Heights. Um, and it is a long, steep climb. 
so we pulled over. We're just cooling down a little bit. But the interesting thing about this tank is it's um, it's marked up in the colours of the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry. And it's rather a special tank, really, because um, the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry uh, were the single unit with more battle honours than any other from the Second World War in the British Army. And uh, they're part of the 8th Independent Armoured Brigade. And it was just incredibly tough being in this unit because they were in this Independent Armoured Brigade. What would happen is they would be... They weren't in a division, so they would be supporting infantry divisions. So what tended to happen is they were constantly in the van of any advance um, and they were constantly in firefights the whole time. So they saw a huge amount of action. And actually being in a tank, a Sherman tank, I mean the great beauty of these tanks is their, their reliability, um, ease of maintenance, um, steady gun, you know, we've talked about this before in the past about the sort of stabilising gun gyro and all other features. You know, the fact that you can whip the engine out and put another one in in a couple of hours. All those things were really, really good, but they were incredibly dangerous. And it was, it was brutally tough. And it was interesting because just a little bit earlier on, um, you know, we're sitting here on the tank. There were kind of sort of five of us and felt like quite a small little little gang of us really and you know you're thinking that's what a tank crew was you know you would you would be sort of living and breathing and doing everything together living together fighting together sleeping you know by your tank together doing the maintenance together you know this was your home and yet just like that you know you could all be snuffed out i mean it was absolutely brutal. And it's really interesting with the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry, just in the Normandy campaign alone, from, so from the 6th of June 1944 to the third week of August, the casualties were absolutely enormous. In an armoured regiment like the Sherwood Rangers, you'd have around about 800 men, of which about 200 would be, actually be in the tanks. The rest would be sort of, you know, support crew and, 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 um, and so on. And of those 200, around 36 would be officers. And the Sherwood Rangers, just in the Normandy campaign alone, lost 42. So more than 100% of their officers were lost, you know, in statistically. And out of uh, the rest of the crew of other ranks, um, 175, I think it was, were lost out of 200. The reason the officers were so, um, uh, uh, the casualties were so high was because and you can see this by actually operating this Sherman tank. You can see so little, you know, and the driver and the co-driver, for the most of the time, when it's safe, they're driving around with their heads sticking out. But in a battle station, what you would do is you'd close the lid and you'd be dependent on your periscope. But the periscope enables such a little error of vision. I mean, you really could see absolutely diddly squat. And so to be able to manoeuvre around, to be able to see what, you know, and it's obviously very dangerous to be moving around blind, even in a tank like this. So the commander was the one who would tend to constantly have his head out of the turret. And that made him incredibly vulnerable because the reason the turret is up, you've got the commander's position up here is so you can see. But that means you're high, which means you've got a high silhouette, which means your head's sticking out, which means you're, more, uh, you're much more easy to see. And it was, you know, being sniped at, shot at and all the rest of it. You know, it was an incredibly dangerous job. And the problem is it doesn't take much for a, a high-velocity round to enter one of these tanks. And if it does, uh, uh, just the kinetic energy, the force of that, and the power of that hitting some of the propellant that's in the shells, which are aligning all these, the whole of the turret and on the sides of it and all the rest of it, you can just imagine what's happened if that, if that ignites. Boom, the whole thing goes up and everyone inside of here is absolutely toast. They're kind of just charred goo. And, and really, you couldn't think of a kind of worse place to be than inside a tank in a, in a, in a major battle. And although the British and, and the Allies were particularly good at trying to keep their casualties, their frontline casualties, to an absolute bare minimum, if you were unfortunate enough to be in the front line, in the infantry or in tanks, your chances of getting through unscathed were worse than they were had you been on the Western Front in the First World War. 
So I'm now at, uh, at the main camp for the 30 Corps reenactment, um, just on the Crowspeak Heights, just outside Nijmegen. I've caught up again with Jim. Um, Jim, thank you for yesterday. That was amazing, that trip. It was absolutely brilliant. Oh, pleasure. And, uh, and you had a, had a good night last night. The stars are out. You've got the fire going. Yeah, very cold, but uh, we've got our own little fire, a um, little uh, pot-bellied stove, which we um, uh, put coal and wood on. That yeah. was, it was yeah, uh, very, very warm and toasty in the, in the tent. Um, and it's absolutely amazing, this, isn't it? I mean, there are a lot of vehicles here. I think 250 here. That's yeah. what that's what should be here, anyway. It's absolutely extraordinary. And, and what's amazing is a, a military policeman has just gone past. You may just have heard the motorbike going then, rounding everyone up for the morning briefing. So we're going to sort of try and listen in on that. But um, it's quite something to behold. Uh, and it's just amazing how many vehicles are still up and running, isn't it, after all these years? Yeah, um, there's quite a lot of different vehicles as well, not just the same old you know, Jeep, Dodge, GMC type show. It's uh, you know some uh, real rare stuff here, you know, it's, uh, which, is, which is really nice. Yeah, this one, this one here, uh, we've got, this is a sort of tank transporter, a low loader with, a, with a, what looks like a Stuart tank on it. So what vehicle is that, do you know? Um, it's a uh, Scammel, Scammel with a, Scammel. Yeah, a, a tank transporter used by the British early, early on in the war, probably um, before we had the Diamond T's uh, and uh, tank transporters that came in from, from, the, from the States. So it, it's very, very slow. It's, it's very slow and um, you know, sort of cumbersome, but you know, it is good. But can pull some, pull oh, some yeah, weight. Yeah, uh, certainly pull some weight, yeah. yeah. But very hard, hard to um, you know, sort of operate. Uh, no, no power steering. Um, yeah, very, very difficult. Well, we've got the briefing now, so let's listen in on that. Um, and Jim, I'll catch up with you later. Well, I've now bumped into my old mucker, Tobin Jones, and Tobin and I go back a little way, don't we, Tobin? And, um, uh, and great to see you here. And Tobin, I should say, is a purveyor of many fine British military World War II vehicles, um, currently restoring three, I think, Cromwell tanks? Yes, yes, uh, a mixture of Centaurs and Cromwells. Um, but uh, that's, that's the day job, if you like. So uh, this is just a bit of fun and, uh, and entertainment. And, and we're wandering through the camp, and it's just, it's, it's amazing, the number of vehicles. I think there's sort of 250 or something here, and there's field kitchens and various trucks. And, and the emphasis is, this is all British stuff. I mean, obviously, the British were using a lot of American vehicles as well, but, but by and large, this is British Vehicles. Correct, correct. Um, the, the operation is a, a, a reenactment of 30 Corps, um, and the vast majority were British vehicles. Yeah. So a fair amount of Canadian stuff in here as well, um, a little bit of American, but, yeah. uh, but nearly all British, and that's what we like. So what have we got here? Because this, this looks like a sort of, this is like a water tanker, is it? This is a, um, a Bedford, Bedford um, 1500 weight. I think it's called a Bedford MWT, and it's, it's essentially a Bedford MW, but with a water tanker. Um, on the back and you can see this framework which is all um, which, which covers the tank and that was because particularly in the desert the Germans knew that a water tanker was a very valuable target of so course. they would mortar it or, or shell it um, but if an aircraft came over and saw this in convoy it's just going to look like an ordinary Bedford MW truck. And Tobin looking at this truck here I mean it, it's a reminder isn't it of the just incredible logistical headache of trying to keep that many people on the road and vehicles. I mean, you know, if you're a fully mechanised army, I mean, what is it, 20,000 vehicles, I think, for 30 Corps? Yep, yep. Over, well over 2,000 vehicles just to service those 20,000 vehicles. That's right. And everyone's got to be fed three times a day and watered, yep. and watered particularly. Yep. I mean, what a challenge that is. Absolutely. And, and ammunition. But it, it's the headache of armies over the years. And it didn't matter whether it was 100 horsemen um, galloping over the steps and, and looking for their next target, or whether it was something like 30 Corps, where you've, it, it's the, the point of a spear um, doing the job. But it's everything that comes behind. The ammunition, um, the, the, the fixing weapons, weapons yep. that fall to pieces. Pieces, fixing clothes, the blokes have all got to be dressed. Um, the, the the food, as you say, the water, um, absolutely everything has got to come up, and that's that's ignoring the medical needs, where you've got things going the other way with wounded people going back and getting to decent um, medical attention as quickly as they possibly can. It really was um, a logistic nightmare in a way, but but also an immense achievement. And I think it's, it's absolutely that's the thing, and it, it and it's that operational level of war that so often gets missed out of the narrative. 
And I think you just sort of take it for granted. You sort of, well, why were 30 cores so slow? You know, everyone's sort of getting really angry about it. It's like, well, you try organising 20,000 yeah. vehicles plus men, yeah. you know, uh, uh, however, but, you know, what, what is it, sort of 100,000 men or whatever it is, you know, trying, trying to get them 60 miles. I mean, it is an incredible... And that's just without the fighting. Absolutely. You know, when it was really... You know, what was so interesting yesterday was to say... We were in a column of, what, 35 vehicles, I think it was, uh, and to see that winding through. And, and, you know, Jim and his Sherman tank, you know, he had to stop after 18 miles because, you know, the engine was just too hot and it just needed yes. to cool down for a little bit. And, you know, he said, you know, on preference, it would be every 10 miles. That's right, that's and, right. And you think... Crikey! Every ten miles, you've got to stop. You know, and you're on the. You know, there's just so many constraints against you moving sixty miles really quickly. Absolutely. That a that makes the the rapid advance from Normandy up to Belgium and the, and the Dutch border so incredibly impressive. That happens just in a matter of Correct. days. Correct. But the idea of going, you know, eighty miles in a day or sixty miles in in two days, which is what they're trying to do with thirty core back in September 1944. The challenges are just legion. They are, but uh, I think uh, people sometimes forget that we'd gone through the, the, the dark days of 1940 where we were on the receiving end of the boot, if you like. And uh, although people have said that the British forces then sat at home um, through until the invasion, in fact, there was immense amounts of preparation going on, building up the, the skills of organisation, logistics and the material itself necessary to firstly come into Europe. Um, but then to go to the second stage, the third stage and follow on through. And I think the um, the Allies and the British particularly, um, we had improved our methodology immensely. Yeah, we well, since 1940. Really, yeah, we really had become very good at what we were doing. Um, and, and also that ability to maintain in the field. I mean, part of the design of vehicles as well was to make them reliable, first and foremost, but easy to maintain as well. Correct. And have light aid detachments really close, the B echelon yep. of any unit really close, not very far away. So that you know you can you can exchange a multi-bank engine out of a Sherman tank in two hours if you really have to, uh, and then you're good to go and you can crack on again. Correct, and you and, can keep going. And it was all about keeping that spear moving forwards. And I know here at Arnhem there, there were all sorts of other complex reasons why things didn't go as they perhaps could have done. But that that logistical thrust and, and the logistical effort was not part of the reason. Everything that they needed was there. Uh, at times it was quite a little bit difficult getting it right up to the tip of the spear but that's war and yep. things go wrong of course um, of course and looking around here i mean we had to leave jim um and disappear off into nijmegen last night um just as he was climbing up to the gross big heights but what was it like coming in here yesterday it must have been amazing it was a beautiful evening wasn't it, it was lovely it was it, we'd, we'd all had a long dusty day so yes. that our throats were parched yes um but we came in we did what soldiers all over do we checked the vehicles and made sure that they were okay yeah that's then, the first job really yes yep um we then quickly set there's up a, and there's a lot of dust here isn't it oh, and, uh, and again you can imagine it would have been like this back in 1944 these are the kind of problems you're dealing with i mean i can feel it on the back of my throat just now but all the vehicles i see are, are, are getting covered in a little yep. sort of uh, a little sort of skin of of dust aren't they that's right and uh, as we were setting up the tents again everything gets covered in dust um and one of our team has brought along a, a mobile pub uh, which is a lovely <laughs> yeah. thing to have here but even on top of the the, the first couple of pints that we pulled there was a, 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 a skin, skin of, of dust that's amazing <laughs> well let's wander along so we've got an ambulance here and then let's wander back to back yep. to your vehicle so what have you brought over this time oh we've brought the uh, morris Porti and the lovely. 17 pounder anti-tank gun yeah um, oh you've got the 17 pounder yep here? yep uh, excellent we brought a bedford qlr which was with the listening service and in fact ended its war uh pretty much exactly where we are now um maintenance checks height. going off on our right by the way that's a daimler dingo yeah, um, and they are—they're superb vehicles, but sometimes the ignition can be a little bit over complex, particularly when they're seventy-five years. Oh, what old. about these American half tracks? We're looking at a couple of these here. I mean, they're pretty good, aren't they? Very good vehicles. Reliable. Um, very reliable. Good engine. Good engines. Um, these two, I think, are international. They are internationals. Um, I've only ever owned a white um, half track before. You can tell the difference because on the internationals, they've got a curved back edge. Right. The whites had a square back edge. Right, and that's how uh, you know. That's the yeah. But th having said that, they. They were all very, very similar vehicles. And oh, is this a Firefly here? But it looks fit. No, this is a high-velocity American one. It's it is. This is a, a late, um, and I'm 
perhaps we ought to move somewhere else, James, because um, since our last programme, this isn't um, my best area of expertise. No, that's all right. But this is a late model, Sherman. Yeah. Um, cast hull, uh, the additionally wide tracks and the um, horizontal Gosh, look um, at that. Yes, completely suspension. different suspension. Yeah. yeah. Wow, so that would be post-war, would it? Uh, no, tail end of the war. Tail end of the war. Um, here we've got a Canadian truck. This is a C15, I believe. No, C60. Yeah. Um, and then you've got the good old-fashioned, know where you stand, um, weapons carrier. That's right. You've got a very rare one over there, which is a um, Staghound armoured car. Yep. And there were quite a lot of those um, in this part of the war. And you've just um, restored one of these, I've haven't you? I've just restored one of these. Yes, that's correct. Um, so it's a vehicle that's close to my heart. Yeah, a pretty um, good? Very good. It, it's an unusual vehicle in that it has a pair of GMC um, 270 um, cubic inch engines, six-cylinder inlines. And what sort of speed will these do? Uh, this will do a very happy 55 miles an hour on the road. Really? Yeah, quite advanced. It's got um, electro-hydraulic uh, steering. Wow. Um, that sounds advanced. Yeah, I mean, the, the engines drive through a fluid fly... Each engine drives through a fluid flywheel, then down through um, a GMC um, automatic gearbox, down into a transfer box and then into the normal transmission giving you two or four wheel drive wow and these are pretty prevalent were they they would they were um so your reconnaissance your reconnaissance battalion they Mm. would they would well there's a there's a story there too because although these vehicles were originally designed for the british when we were fighting in the desert yeah and it's really a desert vehicle so it's the equivalent of a tank on wheels it could go very fast. It weighs in at 14.7 tonnes, I think, when it was okay, fully equipped. Okay, so half equipped. a Sherman. Yeah, um, but it moves quickly. It's got a, a small 37mm gun, um, but but manoeuvrable, good. A little bit too wide. I think we're talking 8 foot 6 wide. Right. Um, and particularly when they first showed up in operations in Italy, they were just too wide for the roads. Right. Um, Italian roads, which are really paths. But over here, the Canadians, I believe the Poles had them as well, um, and they were a popular vehicle. Yeah. Having said that, they didn't use them for reconnaissance so much because they were too big. Right. And the British idea of reconnaissance is um, much more um, uh, akin to the um, Dame Ladingo. Right. Where it's a small, quiet vehicle that doesn't get seen. Right. Rather than this American view, which is a big old vehicle that comes yeah. in and lob shells at you and then retreats. This and is I, another unusual yeah. vehicle. This is a, a Morris um, light reconnaissance car. This one belongs to... I've never even seen one of those before. No, this one belongs to Bovingdon, um, the tank museum. Right. And uh, again, a little bit of a Morris... It's a nice vehicle using as many of the original Morris parts as they could with a tin can body put over the top and a a hand-operated turret. But uh, they crop up in the photographs. They were here and they were here in in reasonable numbers and uh, and performed a a really good job. Well, uh, yeah, it's amazing. And then these are little dingoes... Dingoes again, yes, Daimler Dingoes, various marks. But they're super little vehicles because they will go along at 55 miles an hour. So if you're on the road, it's it's a sensible vehicle to have. Um, Pretty small. I know um, two of the um, guards soldiers who were here um, a couple of nights back and two of them actually managed to spend the night sleeping in one, which is (laughs) really something of an achievement. But they're very quiet. You sneak along four-wheel drive, cross-country, you push forward reconnaissance to find out where the enemy are, what strength they're in, have a quick look and then nip away without being seen. So if, if one wants to go and sort of, you know, this seems like a good starter vehicle for the for the person new to military vehicles. Yep, yep. How much? Um, oh, the, they're becoming much more expensive. So um, uh, particularly so many of the British vehicles are at the moment. But I, probably £30,000 would buy you uh, um, a dingo that needed a, a bit of fettling. Right. Um, but not too much. N- not too much. That's but, quite a lot of um, money, isn't it? An immensely um, high-quality finished vehicle would probably be around the £40,000, £45,000 wow. mark. Okay, so yeah, it is a, it's, it's quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah. Here's another armoured car you can see there, which is a, a Daimler armoured car. Yeah, um, and, and they were a bit more prevalent, were they? Because they're not quite as big as a stackhand, is it? No, that's right. Again, um, fairly common. Um, it's the big brother to the Dame Ladingo. Yes. Um, very similar in many ways, um, but uh, uh, strangely built on a chassis rather than uh, on a solid hull, which right. Dingo was as well. And you can see the chassis rails here along the sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the armoured section just is, is literally on just on bolted on top. That's amazing. And just over here, we've got, well, we've got a, another Sherman. We've got a, um, what looks like an M10. 
or an M18. Can't yes, yeah, an Achilles, I think, um, uh, with a 17-pounder. Uh, and here's gun. an old friend in front of us. Correct. Here's the uh, the, the Morris is your 17-pounder. 17-pounder behind, and yeah. these were vehicles which came up with um, 30 core, and they were part of the the anti-tank defence. Uh, we know the the, the the weapon well, and it, it tows well. It does everything that I think could have been asked of it back in the day. Now, you'll remember we did a little experiment with this, because it's very interesting, there was a sort of book on British artillery, and one of the criticisms of the 17-pounder was that it took a while to sort of get into position. It took too long to get into position. And so um, you and I and our team, we, we got together, <laughs> yes. and we I think we were with this vehicle, weren't we? That's and right. We unshackled it, we had the team, and we got a... We had a blank shell in the breach, and I think it was about 23 seconds, wasn't it? That's right. It's, I it's, mean, it was incredibly easy to manoeuvre into position. I just, I still don't understand where that criticism comes from. No, but there's a lot of a lot of these things that um, ideas that that start to gain ground, and it's very difficult. You, you need to do these things and try them. Right. And Learning from the process of doing. I'm a, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a big big I'm fan of that. I'm not a natural reenactor, but it. Having said that, doing these things, and when you're in the field and you try it and you suddenly find, oh, this is particularly easy. Yeah. Or, on some occasions, things that you thought were very easy are actually much more complicated. And, of course, the 17-pounder just had the phenomenal velocity. Yes. I mean, you know, sort of over 3,000 feet per second. And then once you put the armour-piercing, discarding sabot, you know, up to 4,000 um, feet a second. And that that is really going some. And that's actually an improved performance on the 88mm, the dreaded, infamous 88mm. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, and an awesome weapon, you know, and every single British infantry division by this stage was supported by 110 anti-tank guns. Correct. I mean, that's a heck of a lot. Well, again, we were learning from the lessons of 1940, where the right equipment wasn't available, and where it was available, it wasn't deployed and it wasn't able to be used, very often because of logistics. Yeah. And you, you look back at the 1940 campaign, and very often uh, you, you had um, artillery batteries that didn't have the right ammunition. Yeah. And it, it just doesn't work. They might as well not be there unless they're able to do the job and to, to be effective. Well, we've come all the way back to your um, your pub that Tom set up, yes. the Boar's Head. I'm I'm really impressed that you know after doing some basic uh, maintenance checks last night, you managed to get this out, and um, it looks like you're all incredibly comfortable. It is. It's a nice way of living. <laughs> <laughs>